Before we read our text this morning, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are perfect. Your will is perfect. Your Son is perfect. And your Word is perfect. Help us to humble our approach in understanding your Word. Speak to us through it. For your servants listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's read our text together now. Mark 8, verses 31 through chapter 9, verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Every week I like to provide some kind of a main idea for you to get a general summary or understanding of what this text is saying. And I think the main idea is plain enough for us here today. The main idea is that Jesus must suffer and die, and so his disciples should prepare to as well. Jesus must suffer and die, so his disciples should prepare to as well. First, Jesus teaches about his life in verses 31 through 33, and then in verses 34 through 9-1, he addresses those who wish to follow him. My prayer for you this morning is that you would see with fresh eyes Christ's love for you, and that you would consider the reward he offers as far greater than anything this world has to offer. Point one, a contested prediction. Now, if you recall, the gospel as a whole has been leading up to this very moment with Jesus and his disciples, where he finally asks them who they believe he is. And Peter, last week, had one of his best moments in the entire book. He said correctly... It's the confession that all of Jesus' miracles and teachings have pointed to up to this point, but it was the first time it's been articulated by the disciples. And it is in that same exchange between Jesus and his disciples that Jesus then goes on to explain what it means that he is the Christ, because not everybody had the same idea, as we'll find out. He tells them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and rise again. And that's pretty much when Peter's golden moment just fizzles away. 
He shows us that he was really not at all prepared for what Jesus had to teach them. But before I get to Peter's objection to Jesus' teaching, I want to just show you a few things about Jesus' own description about his ministry. First, note that he uses the term son of man, which he often does throughout the Gospel of Mark. It's his favorite term to use referring to himself. He used it twice in chapter 2 already in the book. And the reason is because that term is rooted in Jewish prophecy. Specifically, it's the title given to the one who brings judgment to the earth in Daniel 7. So by using this title, Jesus is saying that the Messiah and the Christ, the one whom God sent to judge the world, all of those terms are themselves loaded with meaning and expectation, but point to Jesus himself. Now the expectation by those in Jesus' day, was that the Son of Man would come and conquer the Romans. And Jesus, knowing this expectation, begins to teach them what it really means, that he must suffer. That's what provided the biggest shock to his disciples in that moment. The reason is because to them it seems like an oxymoron, that the Son of Man, that the Christ should suffer. Surely not. The all-powerful righteous judge come down from heaven would not be overthrown by any kind of earthly power. He would not endure any kind of torment. Instead, he would torment the wicked. He would re-establish the Davidic throne. He would uphold Torah law. That's what they believed. It would have just been unheard of that the Messiah would suffer. And we're so familiar with the Bible and the message that Jesus died on the cross that there's nothing really jarring for us when we hear him make that kind of prediction. And if you read the rest of the New Testament, you'll know that later Christians made the connections between prophecies like Isaiah 52 and 53 and Psalm 22 in connection with Jesus. But early on, before Jesus went to the cross, this wasn't on the forefront of their minds. It certainly isn't the kind of triumphant victory you would expect or that you would think of if you were the one writing history. How can the Savior of the world suffer and be killed? I can understand how, after hearing these statements for the first time, they wouldn't have been able to understand. It may have even been frustrating. <laughs> well, then, what are we doing here if you've just called us and you're just going to go suffer and die? Right? Maybe you should have told us that when we were out fishing. Imagine being one of the disciples. They've already left everything, their jobs, their family, to follow Jesus, only to be told by their rabbi that he would be killed. It's not exactly a motivating speech that a leader gives to his followers before they go and triumph in the land. Not only that, but look who Jesus says will reject him. He says in verse 31, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, for people like Israel, their religious identity is wrapped up in their national identity. So the religious leaders are at the very core of the culture. What does it say about a religion if all of the top teachers and theologians reject the person who is supposed to be their savior? The story of Jesus is so well known that these things often go unmentioned. But the likelihood of someone just inventing a story like this is hardly worth the breath it takes to propose the idea. Jesus' life, rejection, death, and resurrection was far from the thoughts of anyone around him at the time. 
especially his disciples. The story of the cross is not an idea concocted by man. And the fact that the disciples are painted in such an unattractive light is also a sign of historical reliability. And I think that that's intentional. God often works in ways that we would never imagine to bring about his purposes. It highlights his wisdom and emphasizes his power. Look again at Jesus' words in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He must do this. What does that word must mean? Does it mean that Jesus didn't have a choice? Does it mean like some atheists believe that this is just some kind of cosmic child abuse? Does it mean that Jesus is not powerful enough to avoid suffering and death? That's not any of those things. Those things are impossible. If you read the whole counsel of God, you'll find problems with those objections. But there are two ways that you could answer that question. First, the reason Jesus says must is because it is part of God's preordained plan. Ephesians 1 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. Later, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter, who was with Jesus at this time, preaches and says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is the, just the first time of three times that Jesus will predict his death in chapters 8 through 10. But this plan is so carefully prepared that Jesus even names specifically who will reject him. The Son of Man must suffer, not because he has no choice or is not powerful enough to avoid it, but because that is the way that the triune God plans to redeem those he loves. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in complete agreement in everything they do and decided before the foundations of the earth to save sinners because of God's love for us. That's one way to answer it. Another answer is that there is no other way to save sinners. There's no other way to win salvation for those whom he loves, but to purchase them. He can't save people at the expense of his own justice. In a courtroom, it doesn't matter how much the judge may love the person they are judging. If they are guilty, they are guilty and must pay the proper price, whatever it may be. And if God were not a just judge, then we would have no reason to trust his character. There's no other way to atone for our sins completely or permanently other than a right and appropriate sacrifice. Jesus also doesn't use the word must because he has to save us. The Creator is not bound to His creation. He's not obligated to us, but He predestined us, not for wrath, but for salvation. Romans 9 states clearly that some will be the objects of His wrath and some will be the objects of His mercy. And Paul says, does that make God unjust? And he says, by no means. For God told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. These actions and plan is done out of love and not obligation. Think about that for a moment. Think about the extent of God's love for us. That he would go to such lengths 
as to shed the blood of His only Son to save us. That Jesus would descend from His heavenly abode and take on human flesh and human weakness and suffer for the sake of sinners like us. The Bible says there is no greater love than that a man would lay down his life for another. Do you see the extent of God's love for you in the sacrifice of Jesus? Whether or not you feel it in this moment, your life is precious to God. Parents, I bet you can't think of anything that you would, you would want to trade one of your children for. Don't spend too much time thinking about that. But we can all admit that they're more valuable than anything we can put a dollar item on, for example. And yet God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son and make a wretch his treasure. Flip around that situation and ask another question. What do we learn about our sin? That such a costly sacrifice is required. We so easily downplay our sin, don't we? We ask questions like, why is God's punishment so severe? Is it really that bad? Why does God care so much? But each of these questions reveal more about our own hearts than they do about God. They show us how lightly we take our own sin and how little we think of God's holiness and authority. Once again, to use that courtroom analogy, to be a good judge means to have a punishment that fits the crime. That's what keeps the courtroom from being corrupt. Friends, what I want you to see is that the punishment for our sins fits the crime. Our sin is an act of rebellion against the Most High God who made us to reflect His image. Our very lives lie about God when we sin against Him. It's an eternal offense. And an eternal offense requires an eternal punishment. The point is this. We can only understand the depths of Christ's love for us when we understand the offense of our sin. Both are necessary. We should look to Jesus on the cross and grieve our sins, knowing it was our sins He died for, that He who knew no sin became sin for us. How horrible our sin must be. But we can also look at the cross and marvel at the great love displayed for us. That he willingly went to the cross so that we could be made right before him. I love the beginning of verse 32. Mark tells us, Jesus said these things plainly. For the first time he speaks openly and understandably to his disciples, meaning he didn't teach them in a parable. He speaks plainly about his death and resurrection before they happened. God had a plan that was from the beginning. Jesus knew that plan and even told his disciples about that plan. And everything came to pass as he said it would. Yet his disciples either forgot or were so confused by the prophecy that they didn't remember these words when Jesus was actually taken and put to death. That's why Peter responds the way he does. We make the mistake of Peter a lot, don't we? We focus only on the bad portion 
of the message on the suffering while we forget the promise. You notice how Peter doesn't seem to even register the fact that Jesus says he will rise again after his death. But there is a promise at the end that Christ will rise and it guarantees that we will as well. Peter takes him aside and begins rebuking him. I don't know if you've ever had someone rebuke you, but uh, it's not a pleasant interaction when that happens. To rebuke is to reprimand, to correct, to provide a strong warning or criticism. Peter is essentially trying to shut Jesus up because he believes that what Jesus is saying is not true. Matthew records Peter's words. He says, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. He didn't take Jesus aside to ask him what he meant. What Jesus said, he said plainly. And so Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. And that's the same language, by the way. Rebuking is the same language. uh, It's the same word that's used to describe Jesus. Rebuking the wind and the sea and rebuking demons earlier in the book. Peter speaks this strongly to Jesus. And then look at verse 33. Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, rebuked Peter. And he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I've always thought that Jesus' response here was a little bit harsh. And perhaps a little extreme. Uh, Peter often, uh, well, people, people make a lot of fun at Peter, don't they? He, he acts the fool a lot, it seems, in the Gospel of Mark. Even if Peter was being a little bit pushy, though, or didn't quite understand what was going on, did it deserve him being called Satan in this situation, especially in front of the other disciples? Well, I think Jesus' response corrected my own misunderstanding in that. Jesus says there are two ways of thinking. Either we think about the things of God or we think about the things of man. Those are the only two options. Jesus just explained clearly what the things of God was, the plan of God, and Peter opposed it. And in opposing it, he didn't just disagree, but he pulled Jesus aside from teaching to prevent him from saying any more. But by acting And speaking in opposition to Jesus, Peter directly opposes the plan of God. And anything that opposes the plan of God does not serve God, and rather serves Satan. Peter set his mind on the things of man. And by doing so, he was doing the bidding of Satan. Peter's actions are what we would expect Satan to do, aren't they? To try to conceal truth to try to reject the message in front of bystanders, even to try to convince Jesus there is another way. Did you know that when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew's gospel, that's exactly what he does? He tries to convince Jesus to do things the easy way. And Jesus uses very similar language to rebuke Satan there as he does to rebuke Peter here in our text. Peter didn't want to think about the sacrifice of any kind. The disciples think that they are going to be first when it comes to glory and honor. They think they're first in line to success of the kingdom. In fact, in chapter 10 of Mark, uh, Mark tells us that James and John make this bold request where they ask Jesus to sit on his right and his left side. They only had their minds set on the crown, 
not seeing the cross that had to come first. What you'll notice here is that Jesus doesn't just rebuke Peter, but specifically refers to what's going on in Peter's mind. Much of our allegiance and obedience to God is in action of the mind, or at least begins with the mind and proceeds into action. The mind has always played a crucial role because it's our mind with which that we make decisions. We decide what we believe and then we act on those beliefs. Every sin begins with a desire and a decision by the mind to ignore what God has said about something. It's the seed of doubt that's sown into the minds of Adam and Eve that caused them to go against God's instruction in the garden. That's why Christianity is more than just a religion in which you perform various actions and rituals. Because actions don't matter if the mind is not engaged. The mind must have a certain understanding about who God is, and every person must decide either to submit to God's desires or to our own desires. And Peter in this moment is thinking about the things of man, his own desires. In the New Testament, Paul says that people live according to the flesh, and those who do set their mind on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set their mind on the flesh is death, he says, but to send, set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Application for us. How can you prevent yourself from setting your mind on the things of man rather than on the things of God? That's one of the reasons Jesus teaches about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And that's our second point in the next section of verses. A call to discipleship. A call to discipleship. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, With his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In order to understand this statement, you need to understand the context in which people were living in that time. Because for us, the cross is a very common common icon. People wear it around their necks. People tattoo it on their bodies. Uh, we, have, we have it on our church buildings. It's all over. And really for us it has become more of a symbol of hope and forgiveness. But it was not always that way. During Jesus' day, the, the cross was a grotesque symbol. Uh, one preacher compared it to something like the electric chair or a noose. The cross was a barbaric torture device living under Roman rule. Romans exercised capital punishment in in a very public and graphic way. It was the most severe sentence that could be given to someone, and it was also the most shameful. Before the condemned would be nailed to the cross, they were often stripped down, beaten, and then required to carry the crossbeam, that's what they're nailed to, carry the crossbeam over to the stake that it would be nailed down to and then raised up on. And that's the image that Jesus is using to describe his disciples. Those who would follow Jesus are to pick up their cross beams and follow him. If you were to pass by an active crucifixion happening and you saw someone 
at that stage carrying their crossbeam, you would know that they were as good as dead. It's like they're digging their own grave, in a sense, carrying their own noose. It's the same kind of idea. And so Jesus not only says that the Son of Man will suffer and be killed, but that those who wish to follow the Son of Man must also take up their crosses. Jesus is speaking metaphorically, in a sense, that one must put their old ways of thinking to death and live as a completely new person, that disciples should put to death living for themselves and instead live for Christ. That's to make everything they do for the glory of God rather than the glory of themselves. To do things with the things of God in mind. Those who wish to follow Christ cannot be driven by their own desires, but Christ's. It means that we as Christians don't consider ourselves the center of the world. Instead, we believe that the mission of Christ is to proclaim the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection to the world for the forgiveness of sins. It means that metaphorically, anyone who wishes to follow Christ must put to death their old ways of thinking. They must bury their own desires and live for a higher calling. Live under the rulership of Jesus. If you were to see an alternate reality of your life in which you were not a Christian, does your life look any different? Or does it look the same? It shouldn't. Now maybe you would have the same job. That, that might depend, maybe not. But the way that you make decisions, the people you spend your time with, the content you consume, the way you think about and handle money or the motivations and the goals that you have in life should all be affected by your identity in Christ before anything else. There's not an area of your life that should be unaffected by Jesus if he is your Lord. Jesus didn't go to the cross so his disciples could partially commit to following him. And he explains why that's the case in verse 35. He says, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. In other words, to live for yourself, pursuing your own desires and pleasures, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And just like Peter, if you set your mind on the things of man, you will advance the kingdom of man, which is under the lordship of Satan. There's no neutral stance when it comes to following Jesus. You either submit to him as Lord or go against the plan of God and receive the just punishment for your sins, death and hell for eternity. Those who wish to cling to this life, now, today, to build their own kingdom, to live for the flesh, they will be governed by their own desires and feelings, and they will rebel against the rule of Christ even if they don't have strong feelings for him personally. Jesus says these people will lose their soul. But he says that those who lose their life for the sake of Jesus, their eternal soul will be saved. Brothers and sisters, in this text, we have a clear teaching about the soul of a person, that it is not meant to die, that it is eternal. We are given this life on earth, which is described elsewhere as a breath, as a vapor, here one day and gone the next. But the way that we live here on earth will determine where we spend eternity. 
those who choose to die to themselves for the sake of Christ will save their souls. Because the only one who can save our souls is Jesus. He alone can save sinners. And the only way he does that is through the cross, which the world sees as folly. The Apostle Paul said that God used what the world sees as folly to shame the wise. He says that the cross is a stumbling block for the Jews and folly to the Greeks. We see Peter stumbling over the cross here, don't we? Paul says that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and that the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's why, to those who are being saved, the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. So far, I have spoken about Jesus' statement here as being metaphorical, dying to self. And it's true that every believer must do that at least, no matter what. Becoming a Christian begins with the decision to put to death your own desires and to live for Christ instead. But for many of the people that Jesus was speaking to in this moment, his statement was not metaphorical at all. For many of the people around him, they would be persecuted and killed for following him. Because the reality is they lived at a time and a place that was hostile to Christians. Realistically, we don't face that kind of hostility like other Christians do in the world today. We don't live under a government that sees allegiance to Jesus as a threat or families will not hunt us down to kill us if we're baptized. But that does happen even today in Muslim countries. Part of counting the cost to follow Christ is recognizing that Jesus is more valuable than anything in this world. We make the mistake sometimes of thinking that there are levels of Christians, classes of Christians, if you will, like the the pastors are the really committed ones, and then there's the, the missionaries, they're like the special forces, the elite, they go behind enemy lines, and then there are just normal average Joe Christians. But not everyone is that extreme, is what we think, in their faith. The truth is that there are no classes of Christians. The truth is that all are called to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And that may look different from person to person, but you cannot be a Christian apart from it. For some, that may mean career suicide. For others, it may mean a change in business practices for a less profitable business. For others, it may mean living a celibate life. For some, it may, it may mean leaving family members or good relationships. For others, it may mean live, leaving a comfortable lifestyle to move overseas to share the gospel with people who have never heard it. For some, it may mean facing ridicule from family and friends. For some, it may even mean death. But for all, for all who give up their lives for the sake of Jesus and the gospel, their treasure is stored up in heaven, and a crown is waiting on the other side of the grave, and it cannot be taken away by anything in this life. Christ's resurrection guarantees it. Now, it's true that not everyone is called to be a missionary or a martyr, but all Christians should be open to the possibility. Otherwise, can you really say that you have counted the cost to follow Jesus? 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, the reality is that because we live in America here at this moment in time, it's unlikely that we'll face that kind of opposition that the disciples did. It's unlikely that we'll really feel that kind of cost of discipleship. Because, obviously, the last few centuries here, Christianity has been popular, even favored, perhaps. And that's becoming less so now as Christian values like the family uh, and marriage or a belief in higher power in general are, are becoming less popular. But it's unlikely that we'll have to face death for the cause of Christ unless we put ourselves in a dangerous place. On the one hand, I thank the Lord for that kind of freedom. And I do pray that others would have it as well. But on the other hand, I recognize that our faith is not tested in the same way with the same kind of fire that other Christians have throughout history and in more difficult places in the world. It makes counting the cost difficult for us because sacrifice may seem small in your life. It's easy to be self-deceived into thinking you're following Christ when really, actually, your faith hasn't been tested before. But all of Christ's disciples should prepare for that possibility of choosing between Christ and the world. So have you ever considered that the Lord might call you to live in a more dangerous place overseas, to minister to a group like an unreached people group, to share the gospel with them? If not, how come? We should pray that the Lord would regularly prune our hearts to the things of God, so that if or when the day comes that we really do have to face derision like this, we would be prepared to stand with Jesus. Jesus gives two compelling reasons why it's worth losing your life in this world for Jesus in verses 36 and 37. He gives them in the form of rhetorical questions, and I'll just tell you what the answers are to make it easier. The answer to both questions is nothing. Verse 36, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The answer is nothing. And then 37, a similar question. What can a man give in return for his soul? The answer, again, is nothing. If a man loses his soul, there is no amount of wealth or good deeds or positive attitude that can acquit him. So striving to gain everything in this world doesn't save your soul. And even if he could somehow gain the whole world, it would not be enough. There are plenty of people who we might say have gained the world. Think about tech CEOs. Just this past week, uh, a California resident won the lottery, $2.04 billion, something like that, before taxes, of course. And that's like the epitome to most people of what it means to make it. You're set for life. You don't have to worry about anything. You've gained the world. But all these people, they can't even spend enough, they can't even find enough things to spend all the money on. That currency is no good in God's courtroom. It won't be accepted. It doesn't help man at all to gain everything he can imagine if it costs him his very soul. And he can't hold on to it anyway. Nobody takes their wealth beyond the grave. There's lots of stories, uh, fairy tales maybe, where someone makes a deal with the devil. Uh, I can't think of any 
examples right now, but they, they make some kind of exchange with the devil to be really skillful at something or to be, uh, have lots of fame, whatever it may be. And in all of those stories, the lesson learned is that it was never worth it. Whatever they gained and traded their souls for was, was a cheap and a bad deal. What things do you think you need to be at peace in this life? What things do you think, if I just had blank, then I would be happy? Beware of what tempts you to fill that blank. Because that very thing could contend for your soul if you let it. If no amount of gain can prevent you losing your soul, and if there's nothing that you can give to gain back your soul, then who in their right mind would cling to this world knowing it will pass away? Only those who set their mind on the things of man rather than the things of God. Now, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian and you want to be, but you're not sure what that looks like to count the cost to follow Jesus, let me just encourage you to take stock of the things that you're living for in life, the things that you're striving for. And then just ask others around you. The good news is that you're inside a room of people who have all counted the cost. And that may look different from person to person. But, but just ask someone humbly what it was like for them and what it might look like for you. We would love to have that conversation with you. At least I would at the door uh, if you find me afterwards. I wouldn't... First, I'm so glad that you're here if that is you. Uh, and I wouldn't... I know that this message sounds extreme, but I wouldn't want you to leave without knowing the truth of the sacrifice it takes to follow Jesus. I wouldn't dare preach to you all of the rewards and benefits of being a Christian without knowing the true cost of becoming one. Truthfully, I don't know what kind of sacrifices you'll need to make, but I can at least say that whatever sacrifices they may be in your life, it will be worth it. The Apostle Paul, who considered himself one who had gained the whole world, called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, blameless concerning the law, he certainly lost a lot of credibility and reputation in his circles. And yet he said he counted it all rubbish for the sake of Christ. And as we read earlier from Romans 8, he said that the sufferings of his time, coming from a man who was beaten and stoned, the sufferings of his time were not worth comparing to the glory that would be revealed in eternity. Look again at verse 38. Jesus issues an especially strong warning, giving us another reason to trust him with our lives today. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Did you know that shame is a universal feeling? Everyone has something that they're ashamed of, even the Son of Man. Take stock of what things bring you shame in your life. Are they the things that Jesus would be ashamed of? For those who are not ashamed, not embarrassed, because of their faith in Jesus, 
the Son of Man will not be ashamed of them on the day of judgment. But I can tell you that most likely, choosing to believe in Jesus will make the world be ashamed of you. Jesus says that you can choose who is ashamed of you. You can choose to be ashamed of Christ and love the world, and the world will love you back for this. But if you are ashamed of Christ, then he will be of you eternally. Jesus concludes this teaching with a word of encouragement in 9 verse 1. It's a strange verse, and honestly, up till probably last night, I was still trying to decide what I think it means. I usually consult six or seven commentaries when I come up to something like this to see what they say, and they were all pretty diverse. Uh, So some, for example, thought that the kingdom arriving in power was referring to Jesus' transfiguration, which happens immediately after in this gospel and Matthew and Luke. It's, It's a good option because Jesus is glamorously displayed with Moses and Elijah. Others think that Jesus is referring to the crucifixion, Uh, where he is crucified and the Roman centurion standing by after he breathes his last says, surely this was the Son of God. Others think it's his resurrection or Pentecost when the Spirit goes out and powerful works are being performed by the apostles. Really, any one of those could be true. It doesn't take away from the passage. The only thing we know it can't be is that it can't be Jesus' second coming because that hasn't happened yet. And everyone who was listening to him talking at that time is clearly dead now. But I don't think it actually makes a ton of sense for Jesus to be referring to one specific instant in light of all the things I just mentioned. A common theme throughout the gospel is that the kingdom of God has come and has arrived in the very person of Jesus, in his identity and the gradual understanding by those around him of his message. So if you recall... Jesus' first sermon back in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And at that time, I defined the kingdom of God as being just the rule and reign of Jesus. Therefore, wherever Jesus is ruling and wherever his people are living underneath his rule and reign, the kingdom of God is present and seen in power. You need to only see Jesus correctly as the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. He is the conquering King and yet the suffering servant. And as the message of the Gospel, the good news of forgiveness through repentance and faith is proclaimed and responded to, the Kingdom of God comes in power. Surely it was these verses that led the missionary, Jim Elliot, to paraphrase his famous quote. He said, He is no fool, who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Have you considered the cost of following Jesus this morning? Will you be one who sees the kingdom of God come in power? Or will you be one whom the Son of Man is ashamed of at the end of time? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let it not be us that the Son of Man is ashamed of.
Help us to count the cost daily. Lord, we pray that we would be able, with the Apostle Paul, to see the things of this world and the mind of man and count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would work about this power and sustain us by your Holy Spirit from now until the day that we meet you and come face to face in eternity. We pray these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.